iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Welcome to Off Air. It's like, um, well, it's it's like the good old days. I've got Jane Mulcairin's back. No, uh, I'm really happy to see you, but Fee has got um, a tummy bug. Mm. I know. And it's, well, no, I'm not laughing because I feel immense sympathy. There's nothing I enjoy less than a tummy bug. Uh, and somebody, one of our other colleagues, had one the day before, Jane. Uh, so mm, Have they been licking the same desk surfaces? I, no, I don't think so. No. I don't think so. Fee says she's feeling a little bit better, so we're very hopeful that she'll be back tomorrow. I think it might be one of those short, sharp shock mm. things. Yeah. <laughs> The yes, all the shush words, all the shush words. Uh, but they're not um, pleasant. They're very unpleasant. Well, I'm very happy to keep her seat warm, mm. but I won't be licking it. No, I, I absolutely guard against that. <laughs> I, re- I, I really wouldn't. It was oh, it wasn't remotely funny, but she messaged me first thing this morning and said she was feeling really ropey and uh, wouldn't be coming in. But then, of course, immediately I think, oh my goodness, do I feel queasy? I think I might feel a bit, <laughs> and I didn't really at all. But I just thought. I'm bound to, and I haven't got it. Do you think it's sympathy queasiness that because you are morphing into one and the same it might, it being? Might, it might be that. Yeah. Might so be you've that. got sort of, yeah, if she feels something, you feel something too? I think we have got to that stage. <laughs> it's wonderful, isn't it? Anyway, get well soon, Fee. Um, I'm almost certain she won't be listening, but <laughs> saying it anyway. And actually, it was a good job today. She was not there because our big guest was this food historian, lovely woman called Penn Vogler, but obviously... The focus was on oh, food. food, and if you're in that kind of post-yucky, mm. you don't want to sit and listen to people talking about turnips or broad beans, do you? Definitely not broad beans in my case. Well, you don't understand the social significance of the broad bean, Jane. Not yet, but when I listen, yeah. I will. It will all be revealed. I'll change my mind. So when you were last on, we were talking about shifting sexuality. We were. We've, we've moved on to um, encounters with celebrities in toilets. <laughs> Seamlessly. Yes. And what's this one titled? Jesus's foreskin and euphemisms for periods. We haven't moved so, very far, to be honest. Not really. No. no. Uh, but let's just deal with this first one, uh, which is kind of housekeeping, really. But Jennifer says, uh, the location of I'm a Celebrity, which I did reference, I think, yesterday, because I caught sight of Nigel Farage's buttocks. Uh, Same. Did you? Can't did, everyone see did, that I, now, Jane? I literally put it on at that moment. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, uh, the only I mean, thing... to be honest, they absolutely were what I expected. Yeah, they, they really. I do know what, I'd never given it much forethought, oh, but um, well. clearly you you had. Yeah. Um, the thing that I'm enjoying is how much fun Anton Decker having with it. Yeah, Fee and I were talking about this the other day, and I, I know they're talented. I'm wondering, and, I th- and she was wondering the same, whether they're perhaps they've got to slightly reinvent themselves. Can they mm. keep on getting away with the cheeky lad thing? They've been doing it for 407 well, years, and they, I think so... their combined age is now 973. <laughs> so, but still behaving like teenage boys. Yeah, is that okay? Well, I mean, they've played about seven million quid a year each for it, aren't they? So, yeah. 
I wouldn't change if I were them. OK, they win. Yeah. Anyway, Jennifer says, uh, the location of I'm a Celebrity is an hour inland from the New South Wales coast, and if the cameras just panned around, you'd see Australia's sixth biggest city. Um, it's not the jungle, it's a rainforest on the edge of 21st century civilization. Which city is it near then? Am I so being the, thick? The, the Gold Coast. Oh, it's The a Gold city. Coast is a city. I didn't know that. Yeah, um... Oh. It's a sort of stretch of high rises. Right. But it's called the Gold Coast. I know it's right. grammatically problematic, isn't it? Right, okay. Uh, well, it certainly is, and mm. I don't like it. Jennifer, thank you. Uh, she says, I loved your correspondent the other day who used the word minging. I knew straight away <laughs> she was a fellow Northern Islander. Um, Jennifer, thank you for that, and I'm very glad we're keeping you company. Over there in the Gold Coast. Um, I've been listening... I mean, I do listen when I'm not on the show. I'm not on the oh. podcast. I'm I'm basically better than Fee. Do you want I one of our when books? <laughs> I think I might have one of those as well. You might have given me one of those before. Oh. Uh, can I just can I tell you? Uh, I'm always keen can to I just them. tell you a small aside? Was that when I lived in New York, I interviewed Diane von Furstenberg many times. She's just such a staple of New York. Yeah. Every time I interviewed her, she'd say, "Have you got my book?" And she'd come out with another four copies of it, all signed. I've got about seventeen have copies you? of Diane von Furstenberg. Book but who actually was she? She was a leading socialite. Um... She's a dress designer. Is she? She's very okay, famous sorry, for the wrap dress. I should have known um, that. Yeah. But she was married to um, Prince von Furstenberg and she oh, kept yeah. his name oh, even yeah. after he he changed his sexuality oh, quite a lot even he? during their marriage. He was a flexible but, um, friend. Was he it? was a flexible friend but she decided to keep his name because it sounded better I've got to be honest. the dresses. Had I been married to a prince... And I haven't yet been married to a Still person. time? I would have kept the name. Von Furstenberg is yeah, great, isn't absolutely, it? Absolutely, I really would. Yeah. But anyway, I've got a lot of her books. Maybe I could give you one of hers uh, and you're all send right. her one of yours. <laughs> um, so I do listen to the podcast when yes, I'm not here. Yes. Oh, and I've been very amused by the can of worms you've opened about bed making. Oh, God, yes. It's really. And this morning I got up and I, I actually pulled my duvet back and thought, how long did Jane say you had to air it for? See? You just you like I'm, an earworm. I'm an influencer in my you own are small a way. Bed influencer, yeah. duvet influencer. Um, so this is from Leanne, who says um, she loves the show. She often starts to listen to other podcasts and then just thinks, "No, I'll just put Jane and Fee on." Can I just say, <laughs> very wise. Very don't, wise. don't take any chances. But I also like her. Um, Metaphor, she says, it's a bit like when you think you'll put on some trousers and then just end up with your favourite jeans anyway. Yeah. So that's nice. You're her favourite trousers. I sometimes think on the weekend, I won't wear tracksuit bottoms. I'll put on some structured clothing. Nah. I, don't, I, don't, I really don't. No. Anyway, she says she lets her bed air all day, shuts the bedroom door, forgets about it until she goes up later, usually in the middle of something else, and it's left. And so all of a sudden it's nearly midnight and the bed is still airing. So she says it only gets made when the sheets are changed and that's probably every 10 days or so. Oh, I think 10 days is perfectly acceptable. Mm. Ooh, okay. I do. Yeah. I prefer a week, but I do think 10 yeah, we'll days take is right. 10 days. I've reached a stage in my life where just getting into clean sheets is about as erotic as it gets. <laughs> And then I like to listen to an audio book. Um, <laughs> it's only 99.9% true. Um, Fleur, thank you for this. Uh, Fleur's is the email that is headlined Jesus's foreskin and euphemisms for periods. Um, <laughs> Which is an award-winning title. I listened with particular joy to Monday's episode with the historian Philippa Gregory because it tapped into two of my niche interests, medieval women mystics and euphemistic phrases for periods. In the late 90s, I spent two years writing two dissertations about Marjorie Kemp and Julian of Norwich.
Church and representations of women's private spaces in late medieval literature between 1250 and 1550. I became slightly obsessed with anchoresses, essentially hermits who voluntarily locked themselves into a cell on the north side of a church and dedicated themselves to a life of religious contemplation. This reached its peak in around 1997 when I forced my long-suffering mum, dad and sister to walk around the streets of Siena in 35-degree heat <laughs> to find the shrine of Catherine of Siena. I've been there too. Have you? Yeah. Catherine reputedly wore Jesus's foreskin on her <laughs> wedding finger, thank you, Jane, to symbolise her marriage to God. Alas, her shrine was closed. <laughs> So you've been there. Yes. Um, right. I grew up in a reasonably Catholic household yes. and have been dragged around most uh, Catholic churches and, you know, eminent um, bits of old saints yes. uh, in Western Europe. Yeah, Catherine of Siena is a cracker. Anyway, says Fleur, I always like to think that this sort of behaviour, being an anchoress, along with entering a convent or even wearing the foreskin of Christ, was an act of agency on the part of some medieval women to avoid a life of marriage, childbearing, childbearing and early death. And your conversation with Philippa reminded me of this. And actually, that was the, that, she's quite right, that was the point I made to, to Philippa, which was, who wouldn't want to have gone to a convent? Because frankly, fun and games... Lady friends, if that was your cup of tea. And also, no pregnancy with all the additional hassle and probably early death. Um, Having signed up for marriage, childbirth and the life of a teacher myself, in my darker moments, I too have fantasised, oh Lord Fleur, about being bricked up on the north side of a church (laughs) and being left to quiet (laughs) contemplation. It's just a shame I don't believe in God. I should add, if you fancy a very different book for next month's book club, I heartily recommend Matrix by Lauren Groff. Uh, Think 11th century nuns who don't necessarily believe in God and enjoy many sapphic pleasures along the way. I suspect it's a bit Marmite, but it was my favourite of 2021. I love Lauren Groff. Fates and Furies is one of my favourite books. Right, She's brilliant, yeah. I haven't read Matrix, but it's on my list, so... I'll crack on with that. Yeah, okay. Yes, you should. Um, just to briefly refer to euphemisms for periods. <laughs> yes. uh, Germ- in Germany, they say the Red Army has arrived. <laughs> God. And in Denmark, the communists are in the funhouse. <laughs> I might start saying that. That's good. <laughs> the communists are in the funhouse. The communists are in the funhouse. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, <clears throat> yeah, Catherine of Siena, if anyone... Has... I do. I do think that... That makes complete sense. If you think, I just like to parve these blokes, I'm just going to wear Jesus' foreskin on my finger. And hopefully that'll keep them at bay. I'm not being funny, but um, how did she... Who had convinced her that what she was wearing... Are you saying that, like, the the Shroud of Turin isn't real as well? I am saying... What? (laughs) That I don't know, and this is the most sacrilegious thing to say, I've no idea how long foreskin would last... It, it was it was probably in a glass case for a while, so that that would help. Well, I mean, she had quite a, a chunky <laughs> bit of jewellery on her wedding finger, yeah, then, didn't she? Uh, yeah, at least one digit, I'd say. Right, OK. Onwards. What have you got? Um, so, uh, you've been talking a lot about bras, as usual. Yes. Well, we <laughs> as are, ever. We are a support network garment. Oh, very we good. We are an audio support. Um, this is from Judith. She said, I hate bras, any bras. I even want to donate my breasts now that I'm through with breastfeeding. Is that even a thing that's possible? Mm, She said, anyway, after working from home for over a year, I knew I needed a better bra because I have a face-to-face work thing this week. 
So on Sunday, I came across post-surgery bras at M&S and they're very comfortable while giving me the breast support I need. Okay. But at the counter, I was asked to provide my name and address because these special bras are VAT-free. Since I haven't had surgery, my mind went all over the place, imagining HMRC querying my purchase with no proof of surgery. Can one of your M&S or HMRC listeners explain why they need names and addresses of people buying these bras? Anyway, she leads on Gosh. to talk about the comment on VAT-free period pants yeah. reminded me to write in. I'm bad why they have lifted VAT on period yeah, pants. Yeah, why aren't all yeah. women-only VAT oh, okay. items free like bras? We all have to carry these heavy boobs on top of that, pay an extra 20% VAT, while men just throw in a shirt and they're done. Was any of this in the autumn statement today? Did, did Jeremy say much? Um, he I was very busy this afternoon. Okay. couldn't listen to Jeremy. Oh, darling, I know it's busy at the Times magazine. <laughs> um, you've got all those lovely things coming in. Yeah, it had to do some shop pages. Free gifts <laughs> that you have to look... No, sorry. I do, absolutely, that's you, you have asked me before, what do you do what down do you there? Do? do you just sit around chatting? <laughs> Says a woman on a podcast with her oh, mate. God, it's like a knife through the heart. <laughs> Listen. Oh, Fee, come back. <laughs> Um, what was I? I was onto something there, and I can't. Well, yes. Oh yeah. Um, what do we do at the time? Well, I mean, <laughs> no, I don't mean I don't mean to be right. I thoroughly enjoy that magazine, as you know. Um, do I suppose it's true because men don't have to wear Y fronts, do they? No. Um, who was it? I noticed the other day somebody was on that show, that Channel Four prison show, banged up. Oh yeah. And they went in to be searched. You know, it was all pretend. They were entering a fake prison, mm. and I think it was the East Enders actor. He said, "Oh, I don't wear pants." I thought, sorry, but Mm. I would prefer a layer of material between my outerwear and my... especially if you're wearing your favourite jeans. (laughs) How often do you wash your jeans? Oh, uh, no, I'm pretty... I am pretty clean. But you shouldn't wash jeans too often. No, I know. I know I shouldn't. But there's something about the smell of washed jeans that Mm. I I find lovely. And I just... I just love sticking a load on. (laughs) <laughs> I've got to be honest. To yeah, me, I, that... I like to pop a wash on as well. Yeah, exactly. I find it very soothing. Um, can I read Dolly and Ken from yes. uh, Josie? So funny because that's the one I had. Oh. Honestly, we're alike. There we go. Yeah. Um, Jane's sharing a brain. Dear Jane and Fee, I wanted to share that between myself and my best friend Catherine, it's become a bit of an ongoing competition slash joke to see who can find a Ken Follett either A, the fastest in a secondhand bookshop, or B, in the weirdest location, e.g., Airbnb. I was shopping the other day and noticed these two friends of the podcast side by side. I'd like to think they'd have a great time together. And she sent a little picture there of Ken Follett beside Dolly Alderton having a fine old time. Can I just say they would have a good time because I'm in the unusual position, possibly, of having had lunch with both Dolly Alderton and Ken Follett. You are so showbiz. I'm such a swinger in that sense. (laughs) Uh, And um, I think that a lunch with the pair of them would be Jolly. to die for. Yeah. Yeah. You, should, you could arrange that. Well, no, I think you should arrange that as uh. a special gift for a Times subscriber. Uh, oh, is that, is that another one of my jobs? Now? Yeah, you can move over and do that <laughs> Just, as well if you like. Okay, I'll run Times Plus events. Um, on a more serious note, says Josie. Uh, your conversations have kept me company for years through my PhD, the pandemic, and my first grown-up job commuting from Cambridge to London every day to work in drug discovery. She really does have a grown-up job. Josie, I'm, I'm honestly a really grown-up job. very impressed it's by amazing. that. It's amazing. I am a woman working in STEM, which means I'm often the only woman in the room. 
Whilst many of my male colleagues are the best allies you could ask for, I lack female role models. And the one thing that concerns me is that I don't have a blueprint for what growing into middle age looks like in my field of science. Because, to be honest, there aren't any menopausal or middle-aged women for me to look up to. Your role in my life has been partly to remind me that many types of womanhood are valid. I think that's that's a lovely thing for Josie to yeah. write. Thank you, Josie. And also, I'm very, very sorry to hear that there aren't any older women to look up to in her field of science. And I hope, Josie, well, I, I'm sure that you will be that for people coming after you, oh, yeah. um, which is an amazing thing to be. Yes, but uh, Josie, in a way, though, it's it's another responsibility for Josie, isn't mm. it? And there will be her male contemporaries won't have to think about being an example no for anyone but i'm sure that's not to say that some of them won't be a wonderful example to all of us i'm sure yeah. um josie thank you for that that's very very sweet and I, I really wish you continued success in your career i mean you're doing something properly important and i'm very very impressed and young eve is now in a rather aggressive way tapping her watch <laughs> so i am about to I know. <clears throat> I have to go back downstairs and do some more chatting. <laughs> She's got some <laughs> scented candles to try downstairs. Our big guest, but it was my big guest because Fee wasn't here, uh, was Britain's leading food, food historian, Penn Vogler. Now, I have interviewed Penn before and I wanted her back because I just think she unearths these nuggets of social history that I genuinely find fascinating. And food and food history, they're hugely significant things. Um, so she's written a really good book called uh, Scoff, which I read a couple of years ago, but her new one is called Stuffed, A History of Good Food and Hard Times in Britain. Um, here she is pointing out that she does enjoy a good title. Well, thank you. I'm trying to stuff as much meaning into each title <laughs> well, yeah, as you, I can. Because you can take what you like from a title like Stuffed, can't you? Um, I think anyone who dismisses the history of food is daft because there's so much in here. There's so much social history in this book. We're all made of food and uh, our, our whole history would come grind to a halt if we didn't eat and we didn't eat well. And so what I've tried to figure out in Stuffed is who takes responsibility for mm. all that food? Um, is it the you know? Is it in the domestic sphere? Is it always just the mum? And you know, what's her responsibility look like? And in a kind of on a grander stage, how do we kind of arrange those responsibilities around us between the government, between businesses, between the individual? Yeah, and there are some very troubling recent questions about all that, aren't there? Witness the um, Marcus Rashford campaign to, to give free school dinners during the summer holidays. That. Um, was an extraordinary thing because I felt at the, after 2,000 years of kind of fighting over this idea about, you know, is it a good idea to feed kids? And in the pandemic, we were still asking ourselves that question. Is it a good idea to for the government to feed kids when they're very hungry? And that seemed extraordinary to me that we hadn't all just decided that actually... We should. Yes, it's probably on the whole a good a idea. Good thing. Can we just go right back to, and I, even as I ask this question, I know people will be turning on thinking, I can't, it just takes me back to a boring history lesson. I don't want to hear about it. But actually, this is so important. Enclosures. Yes. What does that mean? And what impact did the enclosures have on what? the poor were able to eat in this country? Well, the enclosures were the heart of my book. And if any of us have been for a walk in the countryside, we'll be really familiar with all those fields, with hedges and fences and all the rest of it. And it was a starting place for me because I realised that that was fairly recent before the enclosures. Those fields would have been open, most of them, and they would have meant that 
poor people or villagers would have all had access to what was called the commons. Mm. And we're commoners. We have a house of commons because of those common rights that people had. And that meant that they could graze their cows or their geese or their sheep or they could let their pigs root around in the woodland. And it was a fairly organised um, system. But what happened with the enclosures was that... So what year are we? Oh, well, the very first... The Enclosure Act is about 1604 and they've been happening informally before then, but they really came up to a, a sort of a height in the 1770s, 1780s, 1790s, but they carried on until the early 20th century. And this is the beginning of landowners saying, this is mine, you're not allowed on here. This is mine, you're not allowed. And there was a sort of ideological background to it and a pragmatic one as well because the population was growing, we had to feed people. And so landowners would say, look, I can't share this land with you, I need to put a fence around it and graze cattle often or sheep Mm -hmm. because I will make more money and that will be better for the whole country if I'm allowed to kind of make more money mm. um, doing that. And I'm really sorry, it just means that you don't have access to Yeah, and isn't it interesting money. that we simply accept it, that those of us in the 21st century, mm. we don't question fences and walls. No. Because they're just, they've always been there as far as we're aware. They've always, they, they look like they've always been there. And, you know, but we're used to places like commons in our towns. And it's quite interesting that commons have sort of survived often because they've been fought for by local residents who might be, you know, uh, might be sort of slightly wealthier or have the time Mm. or the resources to kind of fight for them. Whereas in the countryside, a lot of those commons and that kind of common land disappeared. So after the enclosures then, poorer people started eating more... Well, what did they eat? Well, they started eating more industrial food because the enclosures... I mean, it's a very long period, you know, it's 300 years or so, but it means people can't live off the land, they go to the cities, and then this is at the beginning of industrialisation and they get snapped up by, you know, people who are building mills and Mm. and industries. And so they start eating more, (coughs) excuse me, sort of, Food that has kind of been industrial produced and sort of shipped in, pickled, preserved. And and their food probably gets less good, probably kind of, you know, less fresh. Right. Uh, less natural. But even as I say that, take a drink if you need to, actually. Um, as I say that, I'm wondering <coughs> what I mean by natural. But, um, I mean, we're still obsessed by that now, aren't we? We'll talk in a couple of minutes about ultra-processed food yes. and whatever that means. But um, you've based every single chapter around a key ingredient mm. and turnips feature. Yes, and I, yes. I'm a bit sorry for the old poor old turnip. Yeah, poor but, turnips. But they did done relatively recently a moment in the sun when Therese Coffey, I think, was trying to big them up. But they were hugely significant, weren't they? Well, it was quite ironic because everybody is laying into Therese Coffey for telling us to cherish turnips. Um, and actually, she was sort of going against history because turnips were cherished, but because they were food for animals they're food for livestock and what I try and tell in that kind of story of the turnip is they used to be seen as something that was good for you health-wise particularly if you're male particularly good if you're a kind of virile male they were supposed to be good for the seed of man in the 16th century and um, and they gradually get seen as being something that's really just for you know cows sheep it's interesting I went to my local farmer's market and asked the very good fruit and veg person there does she have turnips she said oh she said, you're the first person that's ever asked for them. She said, I see them in the fields around me in Lincolnshire, yeah. but we never sell them. That's so peculiar, um, because food does change. Its status changes through time, doesn't it? Uh, let, tell me about the geese, or, or a goose, because yes. um, that's gone all over the place as a, as a food 
thing, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, coming up to Christmas, it's really a really relevant story, actually, because the goose was, again, it came back to the commons. It was very easy to kind of let your geese wander around the commons. You, would, you wouldn't need much wealth to be able to afford a few. And then you could have your goose at Christmas or you could sell them, you know, sell the quills or sell them for goose fat and buy something else. And again, when the commons disappeared, that people's ability to eat goose disappears. And what's interesting is it sort of migrates to the city and you get goose clubs. So people like Bob Cratchit in A Christmas Carol is probably a member of a goose club because he's very poor, but he manages to put a goose on his family's table at Christmas until Scrooge ruins it all by bringing them all a big fat turkey right. on Christmas Day that Mrs Cratchit's got to cook. Yeah, I, I don't, I, well, he's, he's long dead, unfortunately, but my paternal grandfather was a member of a World War II pig club. Um, oh, maternal yeah. grandfather, I should yeah, need to get yeah, that yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, pig clubs were quite a big thing, I think, in the Second World War. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's, a, it's, a, it's really interesting that's in the Second World War that people kind of found those kind of fairly old ways of clubbing together, mm. using common resources, you mm. know, uh, to kind of feed ourselves. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com We're talking till I'm talking, because Fee isn't here. I need to make that clear. I used the royal we there. Terribly posh of me. Um, Fee will be back tomorrow. She's not here today. Uh, but I am talking to Penn Vogler, author of Stuffed, A History of Good Food and Hard Times in Britain. I did promise you some chat about broad beans. Um, and now they were, at one point, the staple diet of England's poor or the poor of the whole British Isles. What was it? Everybody. Really? Okay. Because relied on the poor be- the broad bean and we're talking about the fava bean, if you have an American yeah. background, or the broad bean. Because until what's called the Columbian Exchange and people went to America and brought things back, that was the only bean we had. And it's quite extraordinary. I went to a health food shop the other day mm. and they had every single other type of bean. But not broad. Dried, but not broad beans. And they were the kind of food of uh, everybody that you could dry them and they would keep you going over the whole winter. Beans and peas. Yeah, I mean, and lots of place names are named after... Beans. By beans, yeah. yeah. So if your if your village or your street has got bin or bean or binfield or something or Barton in the beans, yes, uh, oh yes, yes, yeah. yes, uh, which is very obvious about it, then you've probably 
you know, it means that local fields would have been dedicated to the beans because that's what people ate to kind of keep them going. I mean, what did they do? Because I, I find the broad bean a somewhat unforgiving <laughs> treat. Uh, how, how was it? Was it stewed? What did they do with them? Do you know, the earliest cookbook we have in Britain... Uh, England probably really starts from about the 1390s King Richard II's cook so we're talking quite posh here okay. their first recipe in that book is for fry, Friday beansy and they did what we do to them now they um, put them with some spices maybe some cumin some coriander and other things and some onion or garlic fry them up and there you go you can make a sort of bean burger or you can make you know sort of just fried beans with them yeah so in some ways everything has changed and in other ways nothing has changed no. at all bean yeah. burgers are i mean you can buy very processed bean burgers in every supermarket in the land now are we eating worse than ever or are things better on the whole i think there's sort of two answers so we're eating worse than our predecessors because we do not eat whole foods so we have more choice you know we have a lot more imported foods than somebody say two or three hundred years ago but we don't eat the whole of everything and so we're a, a kind of if our predecessors were you know agricultural laborers or something they wouldn't have had much choice they'd have had you know bread bacon cheese mm. some vegetables and things but they would have eaten all of it and i think one of the things that we're not doing uh we're not getting our kind of micronutrients and all the rest of it because our food is processed a lot to take some of those out and i think that's obviously becoming a problem for a lot of people what about things like dairy alternatives i think you take quite a hard line on oat milk in particular <laughs> don't you well i it, it amused me a lot actually because i was writing this whole chapter about gruel mm. and anybody who's read all of the twists what, what, what was gruel? Yeah, well gruel is kind of thin porridge basically i saw one recipe that said if porridge is five ounces of porridge oats and a pint of milk or water then gruel is two you know, two ounces, yeah. whatever. Okay. So it's basically thin gruel, and it could have been quite posh, uh, often not. But it's. I, I just looked at these oat milks in the supermarket, and actually in my fridge, I have to confess, and thought, that's kind of like a very thin gruel. It's just oats and water and doing the same thing. Oats and water, is that is that enough to sustain you to the point so that you don't starve, but you'll, and you won't be hungry, necessarily? Hunger was such a problem right. for people throughout history and I think one of the problems of having a kind of big population a growing very fast growing population is that a lot of the focus is on just stopping people from being hungry filling them up with whatever is available and I think that's been the tendency in Britain to do that because hungry people are dangerous people if they're rioting yes. they're very sad you know it's a tragic for, for kids who are hungry. It's bad for a nation to have hungry kids because they're the nation's future. And so I think we've slightly l overlooked quality in order, you know, in favour of quantity. We've been so obsessed with packing the supermarket shelves full to make sure there's loads and loads of food around. And we've kind of overlooked the fact that actually it's got to be good food. It's got to have everything you need in it. Well, you do write in the book about the, the Irish potato famine, for example. There, there is a real danger around food and particularly around economies and around cultures that depend on one crop. And was that essentially the problem in Ireland? It's quite multi-layered, the Great Famine in Ireland. And it was an environmental problem. It was, a, it was again, a population growth problem. Um, I think a lot of the problem was in uh, making people be semi-self-sustaining. Um, 
but only a bit. And so giving them enough land just to, you know, sustain them, their families just, just sufficiently. And so they had to grow potatoes because potatoes was the thing that's going to give them the most calories. Mm. Um, whereas, you know, it was not exactly a full and balanced diet. Um, and a lot of the problems, I think, were in... It was a difficult decade and it was the 1840s there was a lot of hunger in British cities as well so the Westminster government just said to Ireland you fix it you can sort yes. it out I mean I suppose that the, the appalling behavior of many people in power in Britain uh, around that time is a, is a different conversation but we, cer- different, we yeah. certainly need to acknowledge that that it was pretty dreadful um but it did I think it halved the Irish population didn't it it yes around I mean the population it took I think over a century to recover, um, and it and that was that was almost the problem that the kind of Westminster had because Westminster some people in Westminster saw it as a sort of gift from God that would sort of sort out the overpopulation of Ireland. I mean the you know the 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 kind of political will at the time was pretty terrible, um, and yes, it took Ireland a long time. To recover, but I think fundamentally it did something else. It um, it changed that kind of sense that a population should feed itself. It changed the idea that you can have it's normal to kind of grow your own fruit and vegetables, grow your own food, you know. And it becomes much more as we have in England, Scotland, and Wales, a much more kind of industrial idea of food you know food comes from somewhere else it doesn't come from the land yeah but so many of the foods we depend on and love and and fetishize actually tea for example mm. tea is not british <laughs> it really, it really <laughs> we isn't. make it british well, we, we say we do but it's not and then there's yeah. well, i mean curry for example exactly, is without yeah. question the yeah. national dish yeah. and yeah. much loved by me and i know many many millions of others but um there was a time not that long ago when none of us no none of us on these islands ever ate it seems incredible it's funny isn't it and the christmas put is stir up sunday uh, oh, is it this Sunday? Sunday, I think. And what, yeah, what exactly. does that mean? You're that means me. well, stir up Sunday just means that um, that's the day you're supposed to stir up your Christmas puddings right. for for Christmas, and then you boil them, and then they sit and mature, and they get delicious, and then you boil them again on Christmas Day. But if you take away the non-British foods from the Christmas pudding, if you take away the currants, the sultanas, you know, the spices, and all the rest of it, you would be left with a pint of beer, maybe, and some apple fritters or something like that. That would be a kind of British version of Christmas pudding. Right. Yeah, well, we could gather around a turnip, I suppose, we? if we were going to <laughs> yeah, have a, yes. an all-British... But no, not roast. <laughs> no, not, no, no, not no, roast. No, no, no. Um, a texter here says, turnips as popular as ever in Scotland, but only, but only because that's what they call Swedes. Is that right? Yes, it's really complicated. So mm. in Scotland, and I think some people in Cornwall call the, turn, the, the Swede a neep or yeah. turnip. OK, yes. And in England, we tend to call turnips... Swedes, a kind of orangey thing that you mash and you have a, a Burns night, we call those Swedes. Uh, and the turnips are like the, often the little whitey, um, purpley things, small and delicate, which the French have in a kind of, you know, they might have duck and turnips or lamb and turnips and in a bistro dish, but you wouldn't catch many British people having a kind of no, no, restaurant. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. I mean, <laughs> you know, when we were enjoying broad beans as much as we once did, what were the French eating? What was their equivalent of the broad bean? Do you know? Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. It would have been actually the broad bean, you know. Oh, they were also they keen on. <laughs> 
but yes, I mean, it's a northern, you know, it's a North European yeah. uh, stalwart, really. Yes, we forget how close and we peas. are to them. And yes. peas, oh yes, yes. lovely. Well, um, there'll be some people tonight uh, rushing home to cook themselves up a dish of broad beans and peas. Uh, actually, I've had worse. <laughs> Isn't she fantastic? That is Penn Vogler and the book is Stuffed, A History of Good Food and Hard Times in Britain. And I don't suppose you knew, Jane, that in parts of the country the turnip is commonly referred to as the Swede. No, I didn't. You see? Which parts? Well, Scotland. Wow. That's quite a big part. But that's just incorrect. No, it isn't. Oh, I see. It's the same. It's, it's the, the same, same thing. thing. Yeah, you just call it a different thing. I mean, there was thing. quite a bit of controversy in uh, in the northwest of England when I grew up. We at Halloween had turnip lanterns. Mm. I mean, did you have those? Mm. Yeah. Okay. So Derbyshire, Liverpool. That was where yeah. you grew up in Derbyshire, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I'd never seen a pumpkin. No. Until we... I moved to New York at thirty-three. We didn't dream no. of such things. I remember going to America and seeing my first ever pumpkin patch. Mm. And feeling a wave of nostalgia for Britain and thinking, take me home. Just give me a turnip. This place is mad. Uh, take me home to the land of the turnip patch. <laughs> it just all sounds so black out of these days to me. <laughs> well, it does. It really does. Therese Coffey, our oh, yes. recently departed environment secretary, was a big fan of the turnip. She was. And actually, she knew her stuff because in Penn's book, we find out a great deal about the significance of the turnip and the broad bean. So uh, thank you very much for being with me today uh, because I would have sounded even more of a plonker uh, talking to myself. So Thank you for letting me. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much and hopefully feedback tomorrow. Uh, our big guest tomorrow, I hope she is back because it's Anton de Beck. She won't want to miss that. Oh, I wouldn't have thought so. Come Oof. on, have a couple of pints of Lucas Aid and get on your pedal bike and join us. No, I hope she's better because those things are nasty. Uh, thanks very much indeed for taking part. Jane and Fee at times.radio. The book club podcast will come your way on Friday, fingers crossed. We very, very much hope because we love talking to the author of Boy Swallows Universe, Trent Dalton. Have a good night. You did it. Elite listener status for you for getting through another half hour or so of our whimsical ramblings, otherwise known as the hugely successful podcast Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. We miss the modesty class. <laughs> our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler, the podcast executive producer. It's a man, it's Henry Tribe. Yeah, he's an executive. Now, if you want even more, and let's face it, who wouldn't, then stick Times Radio on at three o'clock Monday until Thursday every week and you can hear our take on the big news stories of the day as well as a genuinely interesting mix of brilliant and entertaining guests on all sorts of subjects. Thank you for bearing with us, and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. 
Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com